0: And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael.
1: All right, folks. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 55 today, uh, Near Death Experiences with Dr. Penny Sartori. Um, check us out at and MikeAndMauriceMindEscape.com uh patreon.com slash mike and maurice. Also check out our new YouTube page, uh Ancient Secrets. Um without further ado, author and researcher Dr. Penny Sartori. How are you doing?
2: Hi, I'm good. How are you?
1: Good, good. Um <clears throat> so I learned about your work through somebody on Twitter. They had, you know, said hey you know I, I like your page, check uh Dr. Penny out. And I started looking at your stuff and I really enjoyed it. Um, it hit close to home. My mom had a near death experience with, uh, some of the main hallmarks that, you know, you see patterns you see, um, in your books and, um, uh, hers was though she was giving birth to my youngest sister and had passed for a few minutes on the table. And even when she came back, she was asked by, um, the doctor, you know, did you have, he, he knew something along those lines already before she even said anything. Um So obviously this has been going on for a long time. Doctors are aware of it. You know, it, it's not like a, um, a hidden thing. So how did you get into this?
2: It was through my job because I used to work as a nurse and I was in intensive care for 17 years working and really early on in my career, I realized that death is just so common. You know, you'd see three or four people die in just one eight hour shift. So um, that kind of brought the reality of uh, how precious life is to me. But then it was during a night shift when there was I was looking after a man who was dying and he knew he was dying and we were doing everything that we could to keep him alive and to stop him from dying and it resulted in him having a very traumatic and suffering death and that really upset me because as this man I you know as a nurse I had a routine to look after the patients and the beginning of the the routine was to give the patients a bed bath before they went off to sleep for the night. And um, this man had just come back from the operating, theater, uh, operating room and uh, he was in tremendous pain. And as I adjusted the bed just to wash him, he was in so much agony. He nearly jumped out of bed and our eyes connected. And when our eyes connected, it felt like I'd swapped places with him and I knew what he was going through. And, um, he, was, he couldn't talk, but he was mouthing the words to me, leave me alone, let me die, just let me die in peace. And that just had an incredible effect on me. It really shocked me. So I called the doctor and we gave some extra painkillers. But the only thing that I could do to settle that man was to sit with him and hold his hand. And um, it was after that that I started thinking... What is death all about? Is is death that bad that we've got to put patients through this to prevent it from happening? And I thought we're all going to die, and so then it started me thinking about death, and I started reading about death, and then I came across near death experiences, and I read about the, it was a book actually by Betty E. D. called "Embraced by the Light." That was the first book I ever read on near death experiences. And I read it. But, you know, because my nurse training was very scientific, I just thought, oh, gosh, this is going to be some sort of, you know, it's the brain shutting down and things like that. And I was looking for those scientific explanations of it. And then I was really kind of curious about them. So I read another book on near death experiences and then another one and another one. And I became obsessed with them. And I just thought, well, I'm I'm just working in the perfect place to do my own research. And by a series of synchronicities, I ended up then um, doing some research at the hospital where I worked. So I was lucky enough then to have supervisors. There was Professor Paul Badham and also Dr Peter Fennick, And they were both experts. They are both experts in the field of near-death experiences. And... Um, in, back in 19, oh god, where are we now? 1997 the research began and um, I did a pilot study in the, in the summer of 1997 and then the formal study started in January 1998 and the data collection went on for five years and then it took me a further three years to write up the data and to analyse it.
1: Yeah, I believe in your book, yeah, you say uh you started in ninety-seven at the beginning of the wisdom of near death experiences. Um, and also that's how your book began, the story you told about the older gentleman that you had been uh, overseeing um in that experience. Now you said you were you were looking at it from initially from a scientific and analytical standpoint. Um was there something um like did you start to correlate maybe some of these people were religious or had been open to mystical experiences and maybe the people that don't because i know there are a group of people that don't experience anything they say it's just black i see a near-death experience Mm -hmm. boards and different threads and stuff oh there's nothing after i didn't see anything and i had you know a near-death experience so did you think initially that those two things were correlated or
2: yeah, I thought of that possibility. So the patients who I interviewed, I sort of got their background data as well. So I looked at things like were they religious or did they go to church? How religious were they? Were they not at all religious? Um, and to be honest with you, it didn't have much of an influence at all, really. Um I think people were and one thing I did find with the near-death experience, like you just said, now some people have nothing and it's just kind of black. And I did when I, I, suppose I did have expectations when I started doing my research and I thought that I would uncover near-death experiences like the ones I'd read about in other people's books. But what I found was that some of the experiences I came across were quite fragmentary as well. So people remembered little bits of them but not a full, the full experience like I'd been reading about. There were a couple of them who did have that full kind of experience but some of them just... little bits of them so i think quality of the near-death experience as well can vary um that's why I'm, i'm hoping there's going to be a lot more research in the future to follow on from the kind of research that i did um and as well with the outer body experience that's another aspect i was looking at and i was trying to see if i could verify what these people were reporting as well and so what i did with the outer body component to investigate that i had hidden targets at the bedside of each person and they were mounted off the wall they were they each bedside had a cardiac monitor and it was about say eight foot mounted off the floor. And so I hid these uh, targets on the top of these monitors and they were concealed behind ridges. So the only way you could view these targets was if you were out of your body. And I hoped that if someone claimed to have the out-of-body experience and they correctly identified that target, that would be a way of verifying uh, that the out-of-body experience is accurate. But what I did find with my research is The quality of the out-of-body experience, that varied as well, according to the patients. So, for example, some patients didn't float high enough out of their body. They were just a little bit above their body, so they could see their body looking down, but they weren't high enough to view that symbol. Another man had no control over his experiences, so he'd be out of his body, but he would float into the middle of the room and not to the side of the room where the targets were situated. But there were two patients who had the out-of-body experience that was of the quality where they were able to view the targets. But both of those patients said that they were so interested in what was going on around their body that they weren't looking for hidden targets anywhere. So no one correctly identified the targets, but none of them claimed to see the targets either. No, none of the patients were aware of them. So, you know, it was a lot of hard work to try and do that. And some people say to me, well, Penn, what was the point in doing that research? You know, you know, but I think it's important that we do it because one lady wrote to me and she said she was in hospital uh, many years ago and she'd left her body and she actually floated up to the cardiac monitor and she was a nurse, but she said she wasn't able to read what was on the screen. So some people might have that ability where they're able to approach the monitor or be in a position to see the the, uh, the targets. But equally, if you get hundreds of people who claim to have that experience but still don't see the targets, well, that can give us some very valuable information as well. So, um, yeah, so that was uh, an interesting aspect.
1: Now, have you ever looked, you just, based on your experiment, sounds like what happens during some sort of psychedelic disassociative experience, um, maybe similar to ketamine about the floating outside of your body. Um, has, do you know of anybody that's ever studied near death experience in association with psychedelics, possibly dimethyltryptamine since it's produced in the body or, you know, is there, we were talking about a a possible, um, like a scientific or chemical explanation. Not that that would even rule out something metaphysical either, but just that that's maybe the gateway into that realm.
2: Yeah, no, um, Carl Jansen did some research looking at the NMDA receptor within the brain. Um, there's been some studies and Rick Strassman's work on the DMT, uh, the spirit molecule. That's really interesting. But what you find with, with the near-death experience and the psychedelic drug experiences is they vary because with a near-death experience you can't plan to go out and have one it's one of these things that just comes out of the blue right. um when someone kind of takes the psychedelic drugs it's done with some form of expectation as well so mm-hmm. they kind of know what it is that they they expect out of the experience so i think there's slight differences there in in the context and the setting But I think what both experiences are doing are accessing this deep altered state of consciousness that we're normally not aware of. And so there's many different routes to access in this. And I think perhaps the near-death experience is just one that is completely unexpected.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that totally makes sense. And, um, the only reason why I said that too, is there's a lot of, you know, shamans and people that have had major experiences talk about how they were, they felt like they died and they were brought to like an underworld where they were then pieced back together and sent back kind of into reality. So, uh, that aspect, I kind of identified with the, some of the different hallmarks of, uh, You know the near death which is some people see family members some people see jesus um and then you're told your time isn't now or you've got this left to do or you've still got kids back you know or whatever the case may be and then they get sent back and it's boom they're back in their body
0: well that's kind of like what the explanation you know people were saying an explanation for having one what might be you release a ton of dmt or whatever obviously Mm -hmm. we don't know that so
2: yeah, that's it. That's the thing. When you're doing all this research, all we're doing is scratching the surface. And it makes me realise how much more there is to to understand about these experiences. You know, I remember at the beginning of my research, Dr. Peter Fenwick said to me, you know, at the end of this five years, what are you going to come back with? And I just thought, well, I'm going to have all the answers. And how naive was that? Because, yeah. you know, this has raised far more questions than what it's answered for me, you know, and it it's still a mystery to me now after all these years of studying it, you know, there's still things that we don't understand.
0: The other thing I took away when you were telling your uh, story of your experiment is maybe when you get into that state of mind, uh, what's ever happening in this realm just doesn't matter anymore, you know? So yeah, they they disregard, you know, the tests that you're giving them because they, they, you know, it's just such a different plane of existence.
2: Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yes.
1: Do you, um, have you ever, or has anybody ever looked into, um, and I know this is the talk with people trying, them trying to study like dimethyltryptamine would be trying to tap into not like in a invasive way, but just while somebody's either passing or, you know, maybe somebody allows, signs something says, Hey, you know, I'm dying. You can study my, or, you know, monitor me or whatever you need to do. Um, has that ever been talked about, or is that just not ethical?
2: Uh, probably, would you wouldn't get ethical approval for it. Not at this precise moment in time. Um, so, no, I'm not aware of any anyone who's done that. But it would be probably it would be problematic to get eth- ethical approval.
1: You have you have my word right now. If something happens to me, somebody's got approval. <laughs> Let's get this thing figured out. Um, Um, so back to your work though, when you, um, when you started it, it it sounds like it started with all the older people that you were helping. Did you branch your work off into the different realms of other near death experiences that hadn't, you know, like non age related, meaning somebody that had been in a car accident or, and I know a lot of them are related to cardiac arrest. Um, but was is there other subgroups that you think are are important that have different properties
2: i think all kind of um a near-death experience can happen in all different contexts so in my research in the hospital there were people who'd had road traffic accidents people who'd had surgery people who were undergoing an emergency uh, medical emergency people who'd had cardiac arrests there's all different things and then If you look at the other aspect of my research where people have written to me over the years and emailed me about their experiences, you can also get them through all sorts of things. It's very common during childbirth and complications of childbirth, as you mentioned with your Mm mum, um they're drowning near drowning it's very common um in the dentist actually years ago they used to have the the gas Mm -hmm. and there is i've got so many cases of young children who've been given gas in the dentist and they'd had the the near-death experience so it's kind of all kinds of all sort of illnesses can trigger a near-death experience um in the hospital research that i did in particular what the most frequent um, component of the near-death experience that was reported was meeting deceased relatives. That was the most common experience. And then feelings of this peace and calm and joy and wanting to stay where they were. That was the most common thing, you know. Um, The strongest case is the case of patient 10. And he said when he was having his near-death experience, all of his pain had just disappeared. He was so happy. He was he felt blissful he wanted to stay where he was but during his experience he'd met this jesus type figure who said no you've got to go back it's not your time and he said you know when he was back in his body he was just in immediate pain and that pain was so bad that he really did wish that he had died at that point as well
1: that's interesting so on that topic yeah my mom during her experience saw my deceased grandfather her father and my deceased sister who had complications early in her life and passed away when she was three but she saw um, my sister when she was like fully grown up and had a different form basically um and i know um and and the same thing they they told the both you know my i think my grandfather told her it's not your time it's the most beautiful thing when it is but it's not your time you got to go back um And then she was basically back in her body hearing the doctor, you know, try and talk or things going on in the background. Um, During those experiences, like you said, the Jesus one, I've seen, I've watched a lot of videos. A lot of people see Jesus. Do you think that that's, um, you know, an archetype since most people don't even really, we don't even know what Jesus really looked like.
2: Yeah, that's right. I think it is. And um, if you look at, um, Carl Jung's work on archetypes and the collective unconscious, I think what people are doing during the near-death experience is tapping into that collective unconscious and the archetypal forms, and they're interpreting those forms according to the imagery that they've been brought up with, you know. It's, so even if someone's not particularly religious, we still see images of Jesus and religious images around us anyways, as part of our culture, and perhaps in the subconscious, they're buried in our subconscious, even if we have no belief, and during the the near death experience, they can be activated. Then, if they tune into that collective unconsciousness,
1: so do you? Uh, so you associate that? Maybe you know? I've heard. Okay, so in Proof of Heaven, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Evan Alexander's work. Um, he talks about these like light orbs that once you get to this next realm, there's these light orbs, and you hear this beautiful music, and there's all this stuff. Most people see these light orbs. I've heard people taking psychedelics seeing them. I've heard people associate them with even like UFOs and aliens, but they are this thing that people experience. Um, Do you think that these are the things that are just taking form, whatever, you know, I know this is hypothetical and complete speculation, but do you think those two things are associated?
2: Yeah, they could well be. You know, the this this imagery that people are picking up on and it's how how they interpret it. It's you know, energy form at the end of the day, whether it's a light or not, it's it's a form of energy that they're picking up on. So yeah, and another thing that's really interesting about Evans, um, experience he said that he could feel like the, these waves of energy as well i've met because i met ebben quite a few times and he was saying you know the, these waves and he realized on reflection that that was the prayers that people were saying around him as well and he was able to feel the energy from those prayers and i find that really fascinating as well you know
1: yeah that is fascinating oh, and yeah. In- the other thing too, is a lot of these things can correlate, like, like, even if you don't believe in religion or whatever, w- even somebody's praying, what is praying? It, it's, it's positive intent. You know, we know positive energy can be quantified through, I, I think what's that, uh, Japanese scientist that, um, yeah, makes he would freeze work. the snowflakes. And if it was like evil or heavy music, it would be an ugly form. And if it was beautiful music, um, it would take the shape of you know a beautiful crystalline you know um so we know that you know even people that speak to their plants and you know there's been research on that um but oh the guy's name's Masaru emoto that the, the uh, Japanese researcher um but yeah so do you think that that has an impact like in terms of what you're saying he said he felt prayer we know you know laws of attraction kind of that you know, if you're constantly putting positive energy out there, you're going to get that positive energy back. People that are self-loathing, poor me, usually generate more of that kind of a thing.
2: Uh-huh, yeah, I think so. Um, and in fact, there was some work done back in, I think it was in the 1980s when Dr. Randolph Bird published um, a paper on the power of prayer. And um He did some trials on patients who'd been prayed for and some who didn't know that they'd been prayed for. And what they found is that the group who'd been prayed for actually had better outcomes than the other ones, less requirement of antibiotics and less ventilation as well. So that was uh, interesting. And through my observations, not through any scientific study, but I have noticed over the years, we've had one patient in particular sticks in my mind, and she was really close to death. And um, I know her family were praying, but they had a very well connected prayer group throughout um, England. And they had, there were hundreds and hundreds of people praying for her at the same time. And um, despite expectations of her probably not surviving, she did survive. So, you know, maybe there is something in it, and that would be a lovely study to do and follow on with as well, you know, how powerful prayer could be. So, you know, there are so many unknowns and so many things that need investigating.
0: Yeah.
1: What, what do you, like, what 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 truths have you taken from this then? You know, as as you just said, there are so many variables. What are some things that you have taken away that you can say, This is some solid or viable evidence here.
2: Well, I think without a doubt, near-death experiences happen, and they're very real to the people who have them. And uh, there are some things about near-death experiences that we can no longer just dismiss or attribute to the drugs or things like that. With my research, I tried to find an explanation, so I'd looked at the drugs that we give the patients, and they're often cited as a cause for the near-death experience. But with my research, what I found is that those who had been given drugs were less likely to have an experience. So those who had had large amounts of painkilling or sedative drugs actually didn't report anything at all. So it's, it in fact... Any the drugs that we give were more likely to have an inhibiting uh, effect on near death experiences. Um, Certainly the case of patient 10, when he um, reported the out-of-body experience, everything that he reported was very accurate. And I know it was accurate because I was there at the time it was happening. I was the nurse looking after him and the things that he reported were at the time when he was the most deeply unconscious and he was not responding to deep, painful stimuli or anything. Yet when he regained consciousness, he very accurately described which doctor had um, examined him, although he hadn't seen that doctor prior to losing consciousness. He examined, he identified my kind of um, actions and also the actions of the physiotherapist. And while the physiotherapist was there, she was poking her head around the curtains that man was completely unconscious and his eyes were closed, yet he reported watching her poking her head around the curtains. Everything that he described was completely accurate, but he was just completely unconscious. And if you consider our the current materialist uh, explanation that consciousness is produced by the brain, well, that just doesn't fit in with it at all. So I think yeah. the the biggest thing I've come across with my research is the need to explore consciousness from another perspective, because the materialist perspective that the brain produces consciousness is not factual. I don't think it's correct at all. And we really need to expand our understanding of consciousness.
1: Oh, I a hundred percent agree. And actually, uh, you know, you look at like a Sean Carroll, who's a you know, a physicist and he's saying, you know, he's all over the internet saying it is a byproduct, just like how you can't see oxygen, but it's there and we're breathing it, kind of a thing. Um, then you got like a Brian Cox from your, uh, you know, <laughs> end of the pond and Kevin or Maurice doesn't, uh, doesn't appreciate his work much, but, uh, so these are people that are just reductionists. That's their job is to kind of deduct in, 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 You know, keep doing the uh, scientific method and stuff. But from a standpoint of we need to research it more, I think you're right because we don't, as much as those people are intelligent and do great stuff, they don't have all the answers. And I'm not saying we shouldn't turn to science and shouldn't turn, but I think there needs to be an understanding that all they're doing is quantifying um, material things and measuring them. And then, um, you know, basically saying this is what our findings are. Now, to me, that's great, but it doesn't talk about the things that we don't know, like you said, like consciousness. And I think um there's been studies, a lot of people have taken a poke at this, you know, even Roger Pemrose with uh Roger Hammeroff and their lattice A and lattice B, um, you know, uh microtubule studies and stuff like that. So is there anything else that, from a scientific standpoint that would make sense to you or is it something that you truly believe is some sort of metaphysical thing that we could probably figure out but since we're not even looking there that's not even an option right now
2: yeah i think because we're not looking we we we've just coming at it from that materialist perspective and because it doesn't fit into the materialist perspective, we just dismiss it offhandedly. And I think what we need to do is look at it from that, a dif- find a different way of looking at it. Um, to me, it, it makes far more sense through the research that I've done and from the studies that I've done to consider the brain as a receiver or transceiver of consciousness rather than a producer of consciousness. And I, I, what makes more sense to me is that the brain is acting like a filter and consciousness is primary. It's around us all the time. We're not aware of this heightened state of consciousness because the brain screens it out. And there are times when the, that filter action of the brain becomes more relaxed um, as it would do if someone was close to death or during a near death situation, or perhaps under the influence of psychedelic drugs, that filter action relaxes. And rather than create an experience, all it's doing is allowing that heightened state of reality into everyday consciousness, and that makes more sense to me. Um, and I think it's it's better if we can explore that aspect in a. And it, it's it's not a new theory. You know, these theories have kind of been bandied about for years and years. You look at um Henri Bergson and uh, Aldous Huxley. They've all kind of looked yeah. at. Suggested this in the past so it's not a new idea it's just something that's never actually been researched in depth or, or you know developed into more of an understanding of consciousness but i think we're at that point now where we are getting scientific data about near-death experiences where we have to take this seriously and we have to look at it from a with a more of an open mind if we really truly want to understand consciousness well
0: yeah we need to Go down a different road because it's not leading us where we need to be you know it's I don't know but I, I had a qu- quick question are you a religious person at all or I know you're some sounds yeah. like you're pretty spiritual but
2: yeah I'm not religious at all Um, in fact when I started doing my research I was an atheist and um, I, I can remember having this very negative attitude about God and religion and everything but mm-hmm. I think doing my research is opened my mind a lot. And I would consider myself to be spiritual as opposed to religious. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah. I think um, most people that study these topics and esoteric work and different things, they might've been brought up in a traditional religious environment, but then tend to understand that maybe there's not a bearded guy in the sky and maybe it's (laughs) some pure energy or pure light or something along those lines where it's not necessarily, you know, Zeus up on a cloud, you know? So, um, I think that, like I said, I think the more you study this stuff, um, and I, I think you can still have faith faith that there is some sort of metaphysical thing that we just don't understand. And I think that's all pre- religion is predicated around anyway. So,
2: yeah, that's right. I can remember, I grew up being fearful of God I thought there was this man in the sky looking down <laughs> at me watching my every wrong move and, I was terrified, and then I became angry at God for letting things happen, but now I kind of think of perhaps consciousness is God, God is consciousness, and maybe look at it from that perspective as well.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, totally. Have you ever uh, looked into Rupert Sheldrick's work with uh, Morphic Resonance and how maybe inanimate, inanimate objects might also have some level of consciousness as well?
2: Yes, yes. And um, that is a a possibility. And I know um, Stanislav Grov as well. And uh, we were at a conference together a few years ago and I was lucky enough to spend the day with him. And he said that, you know, he's had experiences when he was um, working with his LSD and holotropic breathwork of actually being the consciousness of a tree that was in his vicinity and being the consciousness of a rock. And he said it's a very different state of consciousness to what human consciousness is. But during his psychedelic experiences, his altered states of consciousness were where he assumed different um, entities like like the, the trees and the rocks. And that right. was a conversation.
1: No, it sounds interesting. Um, you said something about consciousness being everywhere or consciousness being a thing that you know, like maybe that's the, the um the secret to life in the cosmos is maybe there needs to be um the receiver for the signal, if that makes sense. You know, like maybe we've evolved to the point where, like you said, we are this beacon or this thing that consciousness can inhabit, you know. Um but in in terms of um do you think th- That when we do more research that we will find that most um, brain activity, whether, you know, the consciousness part of the brain um, is actually receiving something and taking some sort of energy wave particles, something, you know, because we know photons, obviously, like, that's how we see everything that we, you know, that's how we put everything together, you know, and I think, isn't it 50% of our um, brain is putting visuals together based on memory alone, you know, I think, I think that's part of it too. So.
2: Yeah. I don't know. Really. It's, it could be that that the brain in some way acts as a focal point for this consciousness and it streams through the brain and then we interpret it from a human perspective, because I think if we were exposed to that consciousness as it is, it would be too overwhelming for us in a human body. We wouldn't be able to function. And so it's kind of streamlined. And we only get that very dumbed down version of it unless you have some sort of experience, like the near death experience, where it kind of opens up fully, if you like. Sure. But then what goes beyond that as well. After someone actually does die, it will be always be beyond our comprehension, and until we experience it ourselves in its entirety at our own death, that's the only way. That's the only time we're really gonna kind of get the answers.
1: When we die ourselves well um, and that's the interesting thing about the near-death experience is we are pretty much well i don't think we're getting an objective view of it but we are at least getting a a version from the observer you know like and that's important i think because everything we know is based on we are the observer we are the only thing that matters that is you know if if we weren't if we if human beings didn't exist and let's say there is no life anywhere else, then nothing would really matter, would it
2: yeah yeah that's right it wouldn't yeah it's a it's a really uh, you can get into some really deep thought and deep- <laughs> <Yeah>. sorry <laughs> um a-
1: no, I know we get into some some serious <sighs> speculation here, but uh yeah in terms of uh When you do these experiments, do you go in with an idea of what you want to do ahead of time or is it something that just evolves as you're doing it?
2: Well, when I did my research, I kind of went in with some preconceived ideas and I had these hidden targets and I had a a series of questions that I asked the patients. Um, But these are things that are really beyond our control. You don't know which patients are going to have the experience. Um, For the first year I interviewed everyone who survived their admission to the intensive care unit and that was just like too much work because I found I was spending more time in the hospital than I was at home. So when I modified it then to just people who'd had the cardiac arrest, I was also getting some patients who were reporting the experience but didn't have the cardiac arrest in other situations. So although I went in with some preconceived ideas, it didn't always go To plan is what I thought as well and you know I when patients did have the um a cardiac arrest I I thought great I'm they're bound to have had a near-death experience but they didn't most of them didn't remember anything at all you know it was it's quite a rare phenomenon if you consider how many patients actually do have a cardiac arrest there's only about um between about it depends whose research you look at between about 11 and 20 percent of people who do have a cardiac arrest they report the near-death experience. But then people say to me, well, what about the other 80 odd percent who didn't recall an experience? And is it because they didn't have a near-death experience or is it because they had no recall of the experience? And that is something that interests me because I've come across a few cases where people had um, near-death circumstances, but they didn't recall anything. But at a later date, they went back to that point and they they recalled a near-death experience. So what I'm getting at here, I'll give you the example of one lady. She wrote to me many years ago. She'd been attacked in her home and um, she was left for dead and she lost consciousness and she remembers her attacker punched her in the chin. She fell over, knocked her head on the floor and that's all she remembers. It was just going black. It went black. And then six months later, she had to go into hospital for surgery because she'd had her nose broken in the attack. She went to have her nose reset. And when she went on, um, into unconsciousness, when they went under anesthesia, she recalled a near-death experience where she found herself back in the house. And she, rem- she was reliving that attack. But this time, when she was punched, she fell to the floor and she recalled a full near-death experience as well. Wow. So Mm, and so, is it that people do have the experience, but they don't have the recall of it? So, that would be another interesting research study to do as well.
1: Do you think that might be there, might be a correlation to like uh, how when we dream,
2: mm-hmm. you know, yeah. when you
1: wake up, you immediately remember the dream for a second, it's a little blurry, and then you go about your day and you don't even think about it again? Uh, at least that's my perspective on it.
2: Yeah, because some people do. Some people have recollections of dreams. Some people don't at all, or you may remember it briefly and then forget completely about it. Yeah, it could well be. But when what people do recall, though, when they do have a near-death experience and they recall it immediately, they say it's so vivid that it's etched in their mind for the rest of their life. So they may have the near-death yeah. experience in childhood, and it remains just as vivid if they're 80 years of age. You know, it's just really... The recall of it, they can just close their eyes and it's as if they're reliving it there and then. They have total recall of it. It's such a vivid, vivid experience.
1: The thing I find most fascinating about the, the topic um, is the patient or person having the experience. You know, they're seeing dead relatives or people that were young when they died, but they're old now and they're in beautiful you know white you know uh togas and i've heard even people talk about not seeing hands or feet too i've seen that in quite a few people's experiences have you have you looked into that is that something that you have an idea about
2: really looked into it but yeah you're right some people don't recall seeing the feet and things like that some people might see their relatives they met the images that they have of their relatives before their relatives die might be where they were looking really quite emaciated and you know really not in a good state where when they see them during the near-death experience they're radiant again and they look younger and they're wearing nice clothes they look really healthy so it's a, a contrast to what their last images were of the person as well one patient in um in my hospital study He recalled seeing his grandfather and his grandfather had had a stroke before he died. And so he was always sitting in the chair and he was kind of hunched over. But during the near-death experience, he was there looking radiant, surrounded by light, looking really, really healthy. So there's often a contrast. And and sometimes, you know, if people have had like an amputation in this life, Mm -hmm. during the near-death experience, they can look whole again and they can have their legs back and things like that
1: do you think that that is a hallmark of something that signifies that it is metaphysical? Because I mean, our brains are amazing. I'm not debating that, but to come up with in that experience every single time to see people that are dead or have died in, in, in perfect form, you know, like most people, I don't dream like that. And I'm sure most people that have these experiences haven't had weird dreams like that. So, do you think that that is a correlation to something beyond? Then, since that is a very specific thing that happens,
2: it could well be. We don't know, really. It 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 might well be, but I don't know. It's a difficult one to answer. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. If if it was a dream, it's crazy because it would be a a similar dream in regards where a lot of people see their dead relatives and stuff. So it's like a collective dream that they have i don't know it's very interesting to me i was going to ask you um what is your, what are your thoughts of death what do you what do you think happens after you pass on
2: well i think i've got a rough idea of the initial stages of that and perhaps i will go through a tunnel meet up with dead relatives and be really happy or pain or pain free and blissful um I might have um the negative or the the distressing kind of near death experiences as well, you know because some not all of them are pleasant, some of them can be really quite distressing and um unpleasant, so there could be that there could be like that void experience of just complete blackness um and we can describe this void as being eternal boredom as well, just kind of being in that eternal boredom state so i don't know but i think the fact that i've done this research into near death experiences will help me to recognize the different stages then what perhaps is beyond those stages i really don't know until it happens at my own death but i think an interesting thing as well is um lucid dreams and how if you were able to have control over your dreams or, or to train your mind in a way to control your dreams um then we might have some initial control over the initial stage of our death as well. So, um, that's an interesting thing. Cause I I'm doing a conference with um, lucid dreamers in in the Netherlands in June of this year. And, um, that's an interesting conference and I'm looking forward to that, to meeting up with people who do lucid dreaming as well, because I think that can give us some degree of control, I think as we do pass.
1: Yeah. That sounds right. awesome.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know, Uh, I don't know who they were, but what, what old Buddhist monks would train their minds and mm-hmm. they would do a lot of tra- uh, training with uh, lucid dreaming because they believed that when they passed on that there was a location that they all could go to. So maybe there yeah. is some, some validity to that.
2: Yeah, that's right, yeah. So I think it's, it's important to kind of explore these things as well. So
1: Have you ever looked into... Ancient, um I know the whole movement kind of started, or at least the term with Raymond Moody and from life after life, 1975. Do you think that, um or have you ever looked into like ancient, how ancient Egyptians approached the subject? Have you ever delved into any of those topics? Or is that something that you just, uh, um, you don't find important to your work?
2: Yeah, I've I've had a look into all of those and um, certainly in the early stages of my research, I was fascinated by all cal- kind of cultural influences about death and the practices of the ancient Egyptians because, you know, ancient Egypt as well is another thing that I'm really fascinated by and how the pyramids are and how they were built and, you know, they're not just tombs of kings, are they? <laughs> they, they are more than that. So, um, but yeah, I think um, all of the ancient cultures they had perhaps a deeper understanding of death than what we do. And they were far more aware of these things. And, um, you know, the Oracle of Delphi and things like that, you know, and there's so much things and all of these things were, in a way, um, that suggests that they were regularly accessing altered states of consciousness as well. So they had some understanding of it that that we don't. And if you like our, our culture has lost touch with all things like that, you know, the ancient cultures were very um knowledgeable and we seem to have lost touch with those culture those cultural aspects.
1: Have you ever looked into Dorothy Eady?
2: No, I haven't. Okay, no. so
1: just a brief overview. She was um I think she was born in uh Britain and she was taken to a museum where When she was a kid where she saw the pharaohs or some exhibit and she started to kneel down at the feet of one of the pharaohs and kiss it and start saying all this crazy stuff um and she went on to help most of the egypt or a lot of egyptologists of the time find certain sites she knew where stuff is she thought she knew that she was a priestess from um the uh, polytheistic days of early ancient egypt and um She found all these sites and had a huge influence on early uh, Egyptology, Uh, but she—that's like one of the more credible uh, reincarnation stories. And I—have you ever looked into that aspect from the near-death end of things?
2: Well, yeah, that was another thing that really fascinated me, especially when I first got into my research, because there was this whole field of knowledge that I was totally unaware of. And so I started looking into things like reincarnation as well and um, past lives and things like that. Roger Woolger's work on past life regression. He was a Jungian analyst who did some work on past life. And what he found with his work was that if people had sort of hang ups in this life, if, he, if they went back during his therapy to a previous life and addressed that thing, the, the ailment in this life would off, very often be resolved. Mm. So that is, you know, really fascinating. And then I looked at um, all different things for reincarnation as well. And it's just such a fascinating topic. And Professor Ian Stevenson and his work in the University of Virginia and how different cultures embrace the reincarnational aspect as well. And he found thousands of cases, you know, his his books are just so thick and full of different cases. And so he's just, you, you know, one person and there's perhaps a handful of other people who have done work like his. So we need to be doing more re- work into those fields, you know, and learning more because there's just so much that we don't know and so much ready to be uncovered as well.
1: Yeah. So i mean i'm I'm totally open to the pure material idea of things if they were to find evidence or prove beyond a doubt or whatever the case may be i'm I mean, I'm open to it. I just think that everything I've looked into seems a little hairy with, oh, we know this for sure, we don't know this for sure. we don't you know, we don't even know what conscious. I don't even think we can all agree on the definition of what consciousness is, let alone pick out pick it out from you know what's going on. so um, I'm led to believe kind of what you were saying that like our mind or our body is a filter. And this is something I've thought a lot about that we receive this energy when we're born or whatever the case may be. Um, and you know, it's just this, maybe it's a cycle and it just keeps, you know, the thing keeps getting recycled back and forth. But I, I do know that, um, I've had some of my own synchronicities and mystical experiences when I least expected it in a part of a time of my life. Um, and it 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 actually transformed the way I think about things. I had had severe OCD depression, and it was a really bad situation and, and through you know learning about this kind of stuff, uh, meditation, some you know visionary plant medicine and different things, I was able to kind of pull myself out of it. Um, but I know that there are things I don't believe in coincidence if that makes sense. like I, I things don't you know just coincide like that in in a way that's like you know i'm talking i'll be talking about something and then it'll literally happen later that day or i'll be looking at a clock um and it'll be eleven eleven, and i was just thinking about the most crazy theoretical idea and it just it gives sends chills down my spine you know so things like that um i don't think are an accident but maybe i'm wrong but i am open to you know it just being a a, a product of you know brain and emotion and hormones and endogenous yeah. chemicals and such
2: that's right and a, another interesting aspect going back to the the reincarnation with ian stevenson's work he came up with a correlation as well of birthmarks with people who'd been born and those people um sometimes claimed to be reincarnations of previous entities and um what he found was there was a correlation with the birthmark on the the child's body with the mode of death of the previous incarnation as well so that is really that's
1: creepy
2: and he's got some photos in his book as well that that show that as well and yeah i'm I'm
1: not familiar I'll, i'll have to check out his stuff but that sounds super interesting
2: yeah very interesting
1: would do you have anything on the horizons coming up in terms of a book or research or um, some some sort of new thing you're you're going to try? Is there anything coming up?
2: I'm going to be doing some online courses. Um, I'm just in the process. I've got them all written. It's just a, a process of getting them in, into an online form, really. And so part of the online courses then. There would be live events at different locations as well. So probably start off in the UK doing the live events, but may even then go go to the States as well and do some some work over there as well. So that would be kind of Sweet. next.
1: Yeah, I mean I'll I'll pay to come see you talk here in the United yeah, States. Yeah, come across I mean, the yeah, plan. Yeah. We'll <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you uh I think you would hit it out of the park. I think these are um very um timely topics for, for what You know we see humanity going through and we're kind of at i feel like we're at this point where we're stuck you know like there hasn't been an einstein yeah there hasn't been an einstein in a while there hasn't been any major breakthroughs in terms of what we are who we are you know even descartes was like one of the last great um you know i think therefore i am that's like one of the last great truths you know to me so um I think we're at a, at, a, at a standing point here, and I, need, I think we need to start looking into some other realms of things. I think that's why you see the psychedelic mm-hmm. research with mental disorders, why you see, you know, looking into near-death experiences, why you see some of these, you know, what were considered fringe topics at the time now yeah. come, you know, to the surface.
2: Oh, definitely. You know, since I've started doing my research, I've seen a massive change in attitude, when I first started back in you know nineteen ninety five before I did the hospital research, trying to find someone who would share their experience with me was really difficult. People were really afraid to to talk about it because they thought that I was going to take the Mickey out of them. you know I was going <laughs> to laugh off at them <laughs> uh, and then, when I started doing my hospital research, more and more people took me seriously, and so they would share their experiences. And then in 2006, there was a newspaper article in a national newspaper about my work, and um, they included my um, email address. And I had about 600 emails of people sharing their experience and then when my book the wisdom of near-death experience came out in 2014 it was serialized by a a national newspaper in the UK and it kind of went viral by nine o'clock in the morning there were hundreds of comments online and I didn't look at them because I never kind of look at those sort of Mm. things and um, my friends who were looking at them said that they were the majority of the comments were really positive so I've seen a Really big shift, and then as a result of that going viral, I've got over fourteen thousand emails that I've not yet responded to. Because <laughs> people there. so you can lot, see huh? it is. So if anyone's listening now and I haven't responded, I'm really sorry. I am getting round to it. I'm going to get a research assistant to help me as well, so um, I should respond to them all within a few years, probably. But you know, it's it, it just it's heartening to me to see such a really good shift in attitude as well. And when I started my research in the hospital, initially the doctors and my colleagues were a little bit sceptical about it. But at the end of it, they really understood the value of it as well. And I was lucky enough to work with doctors who were open minded enough to see that it was a benefit for the patients as well. So, I think there's massive shift in attitude to these experiences, and I think the whole world is waking up and it's yeah. it's opening their eyes and it's really exciting time to be alive, I find because I think we're on that brink of making new discoveries about what it means to be human oh yeah mm-hmm. oh
1: absolutely um. Well, let's wrap it up here. Do you, uh, your book, uh, I read, I've read. i read The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences. Um, what are some of the other titles of your book so people can find them on Amazon?
2: Uh, there's also The Transformative Power of Near-Death Experiences. And that looks at people, how their lives have changed as a result of the experience. And there's a little pocket guide of near-death experiences called What is a Near-Death Experience as well. And then if you really want the scientific research, there's um, this uh, other one there, which is um, the near-death experiences of hospitalized intensive care patients. But that's more of an academic book, you know. It's the the wisdom of near-death experiences is probably kind of a condensed version of that.
1: Sure. And I wanted to just ask you one more thing before we wrap up here. You helped, uh, I think you said in your book, four of your – grandparents pass on you know through some you know the work that you were doing uh, as a nurse did you have um obviously you have a more of a connection they're related to you but did you see some of the hallmarks mm-hmm. compared to some of the other patients that you had no uh, you know connection like that with
2: Yeah, I did. Um, Especially when my first grandfather was dying. Um, We nursed him at home and I was lucky enough to be involved in his care. And I can remember it was about a few days before he actually did die. He started pointing to the doorway and he used to say, look who's there, look who's Mm. there. And my grandmother used to get really spooked and she would run out of the room. And I hadn't started my research at that point. And so I just kind of thought it was a hallucination. And I didn't. I didn't question him or ask him about it. Now, I really wish that I had. But, you know, at the time, I just was really sceptical about it. Then when my other grandfather was dying, he knew about my research. So we had long conversations about the research. And, you know, I think it gave him a lot of um, comfort in his final days as well. And so I was looking for things with him. I was looking for these deathbed visions, but I didn't actually see him because he was... um, quite heavily sedated in the the last few hours of his life so we didn't I didn't see anything there then with my my grandmother she again was very much aware of my my research and we used to have long conversations about that as well um but no she didn't have anything obvious that I I noticed as she was dying and the same with my other grandmother as well she didn't seem to so um yeah it's, it's a privilege to be in in at the bedside of someone as they're dying as well. And I, I know a lot of people might get a bit, you know, frightened about that or apprehensive about it, but there's nothing to be afraid of. It's, it's the most natural thing in the world. We're all going to die. And it's just a privilege to be there.
1: Well, That's a hard thing to accept. Most people don't want to die. You know, that's the, uh, I think that's why you see a lot of people under religions and different things, but, uh, well, it was a pleasure having you on. We got to get you back on soon. Everybody go to drpennysartori.com. We're going to put all of her information, um, in the description below and, uh, anything else you want to say or. No, thank you for
2: having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks thank for, thank for you. coming on. I learned a lot. Yeah. That was awesome. yeah,
1: this was awesome. This is probably one of our more favorite episodes in terms of uh, content. But, uh, oh, yeah. like I said, thank you for your work. Thank you for coming on and, uh, We'll hopefully have you back on in the future, Dr. Penny Sartori, folks. Thank Thank you.
2: Thank you.